0: This episode of Proverbial is brought to you by Scholé Academy, where you can discover restful, classical learning online. Their interactive online courses for grades K through 12 pair classical curriculum with a restful or Scholé pedagogy, leading to deeper student engagement and learning that lasts. Choose from subject areas such as Latin, writing, grammar, mathematics, logic, history, science, and more, all taught by master instructors. Registration for the 2021-2022 courses are now open. Head over to www.scolieacademy.com, that's S-C-H-O-L-E-academy.com, to learn more and to enroll. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 53, Little by Little. Today's proverb comes from Benjamin Franklin. I'll read it twice. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Once more, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Cure is expensive because it's necessary. Prevention is cheap, but it's still hard to pay for prevention because you don't absolutely have to have it right now. And in that sense, prevention does not serve an immediate purpose. Prevention is an investment. The cure serves an immediate purpose, though. The cure is for people who are in pain. And when people are in pain, they're willing to do anything to get out of it. When you're purchasing prevention, though, There's nothing wrong, there's no crisis. Which means that in order to purchase prevention, you need a healthy imagination. In order to buy prevention, you need to be willing to play the long game and you need to pay attention to the people who are like you, maybe the people who are like you, although a little bit older than you, You need to be willing to admit that not everybody in the next stage of life is equally happy. And you have to be willing to judge some people happier than others. If you're 30 years old, you have to be willing to look at people who are 40 and determine what preventions the unhappy people didn't buy early. Prevention is about playing the long game, and the long game requires an imagination, but it also requires a willingness to be unsentimental in your judgments of other people. Prevention is a lifestyle. The effects of prevention accrue slowly. Prevention is cheap because it's small. Prevention is never spectacular. The cure is always spectacular. The cure is something that is demanded suddenly in the midst of great pain and either works or it doesn't. And when it works, there's a sublime gratitude that everything has turned out well. Prevention is boring, though. There's no spectacle in prevention. It's a small purchase. It's a small use of time. It's probably not going to make a great story. The cure will always make a great story. Prevention won't. Prevention is mundane. Prevention is a lifestyle that's easier to keep up If it is daily or weekly or monthly, you want prevention to be tied to the calendar somehow. If you want to be a good father, you need something to regularly remind you to be a good father. Same is true if you want to be a good husband or a good employee. You need some sort of habitual reminder of greatness. You need to remember what happens if you don't put in the time and care of prevention. You need to have a few horror stories constantly in the back of your head, lest you give up the boring, patient, habitual work of prevention. There is very little prevention at work in the modern man's life. And it's because prevention has to be a lifestyle. The effects of prevention have to accrue slowly. We have to tend to them. Prevention must be ceremonial in as much as it's daily or weekly. Nothing that you do every day is absent of ceremony. Almost nothing. Anything that's accomplished on a daily or weekly basis has to be ceremonial. But because the modern man regards ceremony as superstition, and because nearly everything about modern life can always be put off for a little while longer, prevention just does not figure into our lives all that much. Our lives are sporadic, random. And because we're so given to fashion, we often move in fits and starts. Sudden bursts of enthusiasm, which give way to boredom, sloth, acedia, ennui, laziness. Almost everything about modern life can be put off. Credit has played a huge role in this. Because of credit, almost everything can be put off a little while longer. There's nothing you must buy today, there's nothing you must pay for today. Everything can be purchased tomorrow, paid for a week later, which means that we tend to make a lot of our purchases sporadically, new things enter our lives suddenly. And the modern life is not a life which is given over to rhythm. Our lives have almost no connection with the earth itself anymore. Almost no connection with nature anymore. Nature is naturally rhythmic. Nature is rhythmic. Nature is cyclical. And the more a life is cut off from nature, the more the work of Prevention becomes a difficulty, or even an absurdity. What sorts of things need a cure? Divorce needs a cure. An impending divorce. The loss of a job is the sort of pain that demands a cure. Debt, of course. Obesity alcoholism. Almost any sort of addiction is the sort of thing that needs a cure. But all of these are problems that emerge slowly, and they can be fought with prevention. But going back to the very conceit of this show, you have to be willing to see yourself as the kind of person for which warning labels and cautionary tales are written in order to see prevention as a thing which is worthwhile. You have to be capable of seeing your life as a thing that could fall apart. And not just fall apart suddenly by way of a diagnosis of some disease that you couldn't have possibly seen coming. You have to see your life as a thing that could fall apart if no precaution is taken. So what sort of things need a cure? I name divorce, debt, obesity. As a teacher, I often give my students this advice when things are falling apart. I tell them, you pass this class one day at a time. Don't think of this class in terms of a series of tests and quizzes. Look at this test as daily work. And the work of a day is coming to class, following along while I read, taking notes, asking questions. That's what passing a test looks like. But there are plenty of students who show up to class and just zone out on a regular basis. And when that happens, a test or a quiz is the sort of problem that needs a cure. There's great anxiety, great pain that attends a test if you haven't been paying attention. And so the cure... For this is almost always sought in a kind of haphazard sort of way. Like a man on fire looking for any wet thing to dump on his head. So students cast around on the internet for the fodder of an essay and they barely string it together and they fail and then they have to rewrite it. And it's all anxiety inducing. But a lot of it comes from not living a life of prevention, zoning out every day, or coming to class in a state of distraction, whereby paying attention is simply not possible. Coming to class drunk on the distractions of social media, gossiping friends, and then simply worrying for the whole class period about those things. I do this on a regular basis yet. I really need to find some way of protecting the two hours before I go to church on Sunday morning. When I don't do my ounce of prevention before going to church, I just end up thinking about something else for the entire service. I've seen people lose their kids. I've seen adults lose their kids, lose touch with their kids, lose a grip on them. And it seems like it often begins with a loss of interest in children. People get caught up in their work. They get caught up in their work, and they don't have enough to offer their children when they come home. So they lose their children's affections. And their children come to see them as nothing more than obstacles. This is the kind of thing that happens slowly. And it happens slowly and perpetually, and it happens perpetually because you can always imagine how easy it would be to begin undoing it. It's the same way that people become obese. It's both very hard and very easy to go on a diet. It's hard to go on a diet today because it's easy to go on a diet tomorrow. It's the sort of thing that you can push off indefinitely. until your blood pressure's 170 over 110. And then it can't wait any longer. And then it's all very sudden. And it's very expensive, too. And when I say it's expensive, I think it's more expensive in terms of time, effort, energy to be forced onto a diet than to willingly undertake one. An ounce of prevention means skip ice cream once a week, go for a salad two or three times a week, not a sandwich. And all that can ultimately save you the cost of a prescription to lower your blood pressure. And several visits to the doctor every year, which are entirely unnecessary, if you just put in the small effort of tending to your health before everything falls apart. But I've seen people lose their kids, lose their kids' affections, lose an affection for their children. The pound of cure that comes at the long end of neglecting your children is rather fascinating. As a teacher of 15 years... I've collected a number of stories of what it looks like when someone's trying to get their kids back, or just to secure their status as a good parent again. I remember once many years ago, oh, seven years ago, I suppose, where I was putting my children to bed at night and I was getting them dressed, And I was putting my eldest daughter, who's maybe four at the time, into her pajamas. And when she lifted her arms up so I could take off whatever little shirt she was wearing and put on her pajamas, I could count her ribs. two, And I looked at her, and I thought, how did this happen? And the child, like when I took a, a better look at her, she just seemed alarmingly skinny to me. And I was afraid. Maybe this is just a young father's anxiety. But I put her in her pajamas and then I said, alright, we're going out. Um... And I went out and I bought the child donuts. (laughs) I can't have my child this skinny. And I remember the drive to the donut shop where the words, good father, just kept running through my head. Like, I want to be a good father. I don't want my child to be this skinny. She looked emaciated. I was like, how did this happen? How did I not see this happening? I gotta fatten you up right now, so I feel better about myself. And I had this image of a good father being one, of course, who provides for his children. But I had to fulfill this obligation all of a sudden, very quickly, cannot wait on it. I've seen this as a teacher not only in cases that I've had to deal with, but in coworkers as well. Where I get the impression that someone has lost touch with their children and suddenly gets it into their head that they want or need to be a good father. And it's almost always fathers, not mothers, who do this. Mothers are involved in the regular daily work of making lunches, etc. But fathers can zone out. As a father, a man can just zone out. I used to have a bigger problem with this than I do now. And it, when this hits me, still, it's over the summer. Where I lose my schedule I'm adrift, and I just don't think about the needs of my family for three or four days. I'm writing, I'm cooking, I'm watching TV. Family life is going on all around me. I'm more or less oblivious to it. The amount of work my wife has to do stacks up, and then something happens, and I remember, oh, right, be a good father. And I suddenly throw myself into the life of the family. And I'm very energetic, very willing, very apologetic. Oh, right, good father, that's what I'm supposed to be. Why don't we go for a walk together? Let's go to the park. But I've seen it where fathers need to be fathered. The father who hasn't stood up for his family, protected his family, taken an interest in his family, all of a sudden remembers, oh, right, be a good father. And there's a certain kind of person, there's a certain kind of man, rather, Who upon realizing, oh right, be a good father, feels that the best way to do this is to defeat some enemy on behalf of his family. And it's easy for some teacher to become the enemy who has to be defeated. I get the impression that there are some men zone out as dads for weeks or months on end and then suddenly remember, oh right, be a good father. And then look through their, let me look through your, through your homework, boy, bring it here, I care about these things. What? How did you get an F on this? This doesn't seem right. And then all of a sudden, you've got a parent-teacher meeting with an irate father whom you've never spoken with before. Who is outraged that his child is failing at class. And when this happens, it's almost always this, like, elevated rhetoric where the man comes in and says, I have to stick up for my child. Like... Why don't you help your child get a better grade next time? Ounce of prevention, pound of cure. And it turns into this big, overblown sort of thing when some guy's putting on the I'm a good dad show by creating this paper tiger enemy to defeat. And it's all very spectacular, and none of it had to happen that way. If day by day, week by week, there were better conversations occurring at the dinner table, if Dad was giving up a little earlier in the day on work, sacrificing advancement in the workplace, going home and preventing... The family cataclysm that has slowly been mounting with a pregnant energy for days, or weeks, or months. Now, again, I think the only way to do this is to make it a habit. Otherwise, you remember to be a good dad for about three days out of the month and then just forget. But... There must be something daily, there must be something weekly that prevents the divorce, that prevents the 17-year-old son getting a DUI. Those are not things that are prevented suddenly. They're prevented gradually, eternally, over and over and over again. So. A willingness to play the long game is how you get started here. A willingness to judge people who are older than you as unhappy. A desire to seek out where their unhappiness comes from. This is one of those just fundamental questions. I I drill into my students a few times a year you've got to wonder where unhappy people come from. The only way that you're ever going to be happy is if you have a good answer for how people become miserable. Not why they're miserable now, but how misery slowly settles into the human heart. Because there's very few people that are really miserable, really miserable at 25. Real misery really sets in 35 or 40. So you've got to keep your eye on people in the next stage of life. No matter what stage of life you're in, you've got to keep your eye on people in the next stage. And you've got to know who's making it and who's tanking. And when you figure out who's tanking it, whose life you don't want... How did they get there? What cure do they now need to seek at a high cost? And how could they have been buying up the prevention ounce by ounce for years and have prevented this crisis?